1: Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction, where authors talk about their novels of speculative and fantastical and speculatively fantastic and fantastically speculative fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Artificial Schmartificial Edition. On the show with me today is S.B. Divya to talk about her debut novel, Machinehood, which came out earlier this month. It's about a group of rebels, some would call them terrorists, threatening to unplug the world from the tech essential to modern life unless all intelligences, both human and man-made, are given equal rights. And it's also about Welga Ramirez, who is a bit of a cyborg herself, but she is determined to stop the machinehood. S.B. Divya was nominated for Hugo and Nebula Awards for her novella Runtime. She is also co-editor of Escape Pod with Mer Lafferty, who has also been a guest on the show. Her short stories have been published in Analog, Uncanny, and Tor.com, among many publications. Her collection Contingency Plans for the Apocalypse and Other Situations is now out from Hachette, India. She holds degrees in computational neuroscience and signal processing, and for 20 years worked as an electrical engineer in various fields, including pattern recognition, machine intelligence, high-speed communication, digital music, and medical devices before becoming an author. And I'm thrilled to have her with me now from her home in Southern California. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction, and congrats on your debut.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: The book opens with what seems like an innocuous slice-of-life moment where the hero, Welga, is ordering coffee from a bot in Chennai, India. And she asks for black coffee, but the bot puts milk in it while insisting on calling it black coffee. And then a human vendor calls her over and fills her order exactly as she requested it. And the human vendor gets to have the last word, declaring... Bots work faster, but human mind is smarter. And his assessment ends up foreshadowing a fault line that runs throughout the book and through the relationship between artificial intelligences and human intelligences, a sort of competition between humans and bots. In this case of the coffee, it's clear that the human-generated coffee is superior, but in other areas, humans are afraid maybe of falling behind. I wondered if you could talk about humankind's relationship with artificial intelligences in your book. How dependent have humans become on bots and what you call W.A.I.s, which stands for weak artificial intelligences?
0: In the future, I've envisioned for machinehood, which takes place about 75 years from now. Humans have become very dependent on their devices, including bots and weak A.I.s. I see that as an extension of what has happened to us in the past and definitely what is happening to us currently. We find our devices becoming increasingly capable and ourselves increasingly dependent on having them to extend our own productivity, our memory, our capacity to learn, and now after this pandemic, our ability to work. And so machinehood is kind of carrying that forward. There has always been this tension between human labor and machine labor. Once upon a time, we harnessed animals to help us. Now we've generally turned to machines. As those machines get increasingly intelligent, that competition in certain sectors is going to also ramp up. And I know there's a, an existential fear right now for a lot of people that AIs are going to replace them, and and then they're not going to have work. So in part, this novel is exploring that particular concern, but not so much as a dystopia, more as a realistic vision, at least in my opinion, of what the future could look like when we have to coexist with these very, very capable machines.
1: Rather than accept or take full advantage of what weak AIs and bots can do, humans are trying to essentially compete with them. And Welga, for instance, has artificial enhancements built into her body. They were put there when she was a soldier. And she and a significant portion of humanity also take a lot of drugs, buffs, zips, flow, juvers, to make them faster, stronger, speed up their thinking, all as a way to keep pace with what bots can do. Could you describe what those things do for humans and the industry that's built up to support all these enhancements?
0: Sure. These enhancements are inspired by work that's happening in laboratories and academic institutions right now to develop, let's say, smart pills that aren't so much just chemical ways of modifying your body's biochemistry, but are electromechanical devices that are small enough to potentially even, you know, cross into your bloodstream, cross the blood brain barrier, definitely something you can swallow that can work in your stomach and your intestinal systems, or that can go in and for example, route out your arteries or help with heart problems. Most of these things are currently being developed in a medical treatment capacity. But as we've seen with a lot of other real-world examples, things that start out as a necessity eventually can become commoditized. And so in the future of machinehood, these things have effectively become widespread in usage and application well beyond medical necessity moving into the realm of economic practicality and the people of this world are in part taking it to compete with machines. But I would also say to be able to keep up in the sense of being able to collaborate with the machines as well, because computers are generally pretty fast at making decisions and software is getting faster. Hardware is getting faster. Definitely certain aspects of it are exceeding what biology is capable of right now. And so these little micro-machines stay in your body and help you basically bypass the limitations of your nervous system, sometimes bypass the limitations of your cardiovascular system, or accelerate certain things like immune responses or blood clotting, healing, that kind of thing, muscular activation. So if we are in a future where we're going to have to work in tandem with AIs as a necessity for productivity, how do we keep up with the machines and not keep ourselves from being obsolete? And this was one solution I invented for that.
1: People could also choose to just sort of sit back and say, well, we'll let the bots take care of it. Well... We pursue art and pursue vacation and self-improvement. I mean, that that is an option, but this kind of reminds me of an arms race where real or not, I hear what you're saying, that there's a justification if you want to collaborate with the bots. That makes a lot of sense. But on the other side of it, there's this sense that there's a fear people have, and it could be real or it could be imagined that, you know, the bots will one day take over. And just that fear makes humans keep inventing new drugs and pushing their bodies to extremes, and that fuels this industry of pill makers and mech inventors. To me, there was a parallel just to a conventional arms race or, or anything that a corporation has come up with that once feels like a luxury and suddenly becomes a necessity and everyone feels like they need it.
0: Yeah, I would say that echoed my study of what happened uh, roughly 100 years ago during the Industrial Revolution and automation of the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. And it was really interesting reading some of that history because there were people at that time saying that factories and tractors and dishwashers and all of this automation that was coming into our lives was going to free up human beings to be able to pursue art and have more leisure time and do the things that they really want to do. And as we know, not only has that not happened, but people today are working harder and are busier than ever, right? The 40-hour the work week that Henry Ford put in so that his employees would have time on the weekends to consume and keep the capitalist economy going has already drastically eroded you know there are many many jobs that expect you to work 50 60 hours a week or at the very least make yourself available at non core hours so i i look at that and i look at history and i feel like if anything we're making ourselves busier and as long as we are in this sort of capitalist cycle of chasing growth and productivity, we will find ways to harness technology in order to make ourselves more productive. So people are going to have to contend with these new technologies. And therefore, biotechnology in the case of machinehood ends up being an economic driver the way computer technology, transistors the internet has kind of driven the digital economy and the changes of the past few decades. I had fun with this idea of what if biotechnology becomes a lot more widespread and accessible the way software has today. And basically it turns into, you know, a whole new industry and you have this biotechnological revolution or biogenetic revolution. And therefore People are definitely contributing to this economy. So you have a whole new set of jobs that are non-existent today because we don't have that technology today. But should we have it in the future, it gives people something to do and ways to be productive. And they are also consuming those same things that they're producing.
1: In Welga's case and and in her mother's case, too, these drugs actually have a cost. And that's part of the story as well maybe you could talk a little bit about what's happening to Elga physically as she uses these zips and buffs to strengthen herself and speed up her physical response time
0: yeah I feel like in general the things that we do to make our way through life as quality of life improves on average you know most people's lives are better but there are certain things that just never fit for certain people. And when it comes to biology and biochemistry, we are pretty radically individual in a lot of our responses. And most of the ways we treat that today is we, we treat the mean, but there are people always, you know, on either end of the tails that do not respond well to certain types of treatments. And Welga happens to fall into one of these tales in the story where she's using these, you know, smart pills, zips, buffs, and juvers that for the vast majority of people in her world don't cause problems, but there are definitely people for whom they do cause problems. And the, the additional twist I put on there is that medicine, rather than being just a universal public good with doctors and you know scientists belonging to corporations, instead it's kind of become open sourced and it's kind of become an extension of our gig economy where you can petition people to look into your particular problems. And some of them might do it for free. Some of them might do it for tips from their followers and some of them will do it if you pay enough. So people who have these types of problems kind of have to find their own solutions because it's not the sort of thing that attracts big money. And one of the other economic tidbits I put into machinehood is the dissolution of large corporations and the decentralization of both research and the means of production, which I can kind of see happening, it may or may not actually happen as broadly as I had fun with doing in this novel, but you know we certainly see it in terms of things like 3D printing, where we're able to start making more stuff at home. And so extending that, I was like, wouldn't it be interesting in terms of supply chains, in terms of the economy, if rather than having factories and these giant corporations being the source of our goods... We primarily produce them at home on, you know, an individual or a family basis. And so that also plays into these issues that Welga ends up developing. Prior to her, in her mother's case, it was kind of in the early Wild West days of some of this biotechnology before there were any regulations in place. So far more people Had ill effects, but they were willing to take that risk because they had to, because they had to earn a living. And this was the only way to do it. And this is another thing, you know, I feel like there's parallels to what we deal with today in terms of environmental pollution, or even more immediately with our essential workers for the pandemic. There are people who have to risk their health in order to make a living and i don't necessarily see that going away anytime soon
1: let's move on to the namesake of the novel the machinehood what is the machinehood and you know you don't have to reveal who's behind it that's that's really part of the mystery that welga and the government is trying to unravel but what's the machinehood's philosophy
0: so the machinehood is trying to agitate for the rights of intelligent machines to give them personhood. So machinehood is a a mashup of machines and personhood that I came up with for the sake of this story just to have a little shortcut and it really kind of gets to the heart of the Philosophy of the book, which is asking whether it's a good thing that we are in this arms race, as you say, with AI and with robots and with increasing automation, but also how much of a difference is there really between human beings, cyborgs, and AI based robots? And should we be making as much distinction between those categories as we do today, especially going forward as all of these things get more sophisticated? I was really interested in kind of looking at the blurring of those lines and interrogating at what point we decide to give machines rights, especially when they provide us with so much free labor.
1: It's interesting that Welga is the hero because she herself has certain cyborg-like qualities, certain things built into her, and she feels very fondly towards what you call in the book her agent, which is an artificial, although not actually sentient, intelligence that is kind of her scheduler and her reminder and her companion who's been with her for years and basically helps manage her day. So she she actually feels intimate with it, and yet she also is adamantly opposed to the machinehood. You know, her knee-jerk reaction is that they're they're murderers and they have, in fact, caused death as they have cut off the world's access to bots and to the network on which it runs to make their point, to get the, the world to pay attention. But it's interesting that she's kind of in this in-between place. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about her as a character and her conflicts.
0: Yeah, I wanted Welga to represent the point of view that I think the vast majority of people would hold today, as well as the vast majority of people hold in the world she inhabits. And that is this binary idea of living things being different from non-living things. We make that distinction without even really thinking about it too much, most people. But if you look at especially non-Western philosophical points of view, Shintoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, where people make less of a distinction between that which is alive and that which is part of the earth. And I wanted to extend that to the coming of AI Uh, especially as it becomes less clear where the line is between intelligence and sentience. And so Welga starts out, you know, espousing this very solid viewpoint that human is human and bot is bot and wise are wise. But her ideas about all of this gradually evolve throughout the novel, in part shaped by the activities of the machinehood. She is determined to stop them because they are violent, because they are causing a lot of harm while trying to agitate for, you know, these particular changes in the world's paradigm and how it interacts with robots. But at the same time, she feels like she has a responsibility to protect people, to protect her family, but also from her, you know, time in service, from her work for the government She feels like she has a larger responsibility to protect society, and therefore, if those things are threatened, she's going to try to address that threat and stop it, and that's part of her responsibility. That plays into the inner conflict I wanted to develop for her, so how does that need to stop the machinehood, that need to protect people, intersect with this evolving realization that maybe the machines also need protecting.
1: The Machine Hood supports what one character, it's a human enhanced with the Machine Hood's technology, what this character calls the middle ground. What does a middle ground between humans and bots and weak artificial intelligences look like?
0: I think it looks a lot like what we think of as cyborgs, but maybe less mechanized. I think the future of cybernetics is going to be on a much smaller scale. You know, a lot of science fiction loves to play with the idea of nanomachines. And I do think in a lot of ways, biotechnology is going that route. So rather than having, you know, big bulky exoskeletons, which is probably where we'll start, that in 50 or 100 years, many of those things are going to become small and internalized just because it's easier and so from the outside, people are, are not necessarily going to look that different, but their bodies are going to behave in a very different way. And so that middle ground to me is really, again, about this graying out of the lines and seeing human beings and androids and cyborgs and robots all kind of being on a spectrum rather than being in distinct categories that we can clearly delineate.
1: And I wonder about your training and your work, your professional background. How did that inform your writing? I mean, you have a degree in a whole bunch of things, computational neuroscience, and you worked in machine intelligence and medical devices.
0: Yeah, I was definitely inspired by my background, and I would say I drew on it while I was doing my research, so I could kind of dig into a lot of paper abstracts and cutting-edge research and trying to see where those technologies might go in the next century. In terms of AI, where we are today, I think is nowhere close to where the average person thinks of as AI, especially in a science fictional context. They mostly think of artificial sentience, in my opinion, or artificially conscious beings that act very much like human beings or even animals today. In a way that we cannot actually encapsulate yet in software or hardware, but people are working on this problem. And one of the things I find really fascinating is the attempt to understand, model, and quantify consciousness, which turns out to be a remarkably tricky problem. You know, human beings trying to figure out how we think, and this is something I studied with the computational neuroscience department for my undergraduate degree. And the stuff that I ended up working on commercially is not quite so high level. It ends up being a lot more practical. Pattern recognition problems apply to very specific scenarios. And that's where most of AI is today. It's gotten more complex you know, over the past few decades, but it's still at the end of the day, us teaching the software specific categories and giving it very specific outcomes we're trying for it to solve versus this idea of an artificially sentient being. And I think what's tricky there is how we determine that we have built an artificial sentience when we can't define it clearly for ourselves. So there's a lot of fun stories about emergent AIs in science fiction where consciousness spontaneously arises from a piece of software and hardware that's sufficiently complex. And while I don't entirely rule out this possibility, I don't see us getting there anytime soon, because once again, our biological hardware is structured very differently from uh, computer hardware, which is another thing that I have studied. And so trying to say that we're going to be able to model one with the other, I think is going to be very, very challenging unless we are getting down to deeply fine details in terms of how neurochemistry works and how our sensory organs work. And it's incredibly complex and it's a lot to build especially when we don't even know what we're working with in terms of animals and human biology. So I put that together with uh, my love for biotechnology of the kind that implants into human beings. And this is something, you know, I first learned about again with the computational neuroscience department back in the 90s where they were starting to put computer chips into chimpanzee brains. And it has gotten to the point now where we're doing similar sorts of studies and trials in human beings, especially people who are paraplegic or quadriplegic, trying to bypass their severed nerves and help them to move their limbs. And we have succeeded in doing this uh, in small-scale trials, which I think is fascinating and wonderful. And again, extending this to what happens when this becomes a consumer level technology. So I guess my background helped me be really comfortable with inventing these sorts of things for my novel and having fun playing with all the ways in which this could affect society, especially the way we live on a daily basis and interact with our families, our children, our coworkers, and our environment.
1: The bots and AIs aren't sentient, and yet the machinehood feels, excuse me, my my cat wants my attention. Um, <laughs> they're not sentient, and yet the machinehood feels that they are deserving of rights, and I find that interesting that Sentience isn't a requirement in their mind for the achievement of rights.
0: Yeah, I think there's some legal precedent there that we're already starting to establish, right, with corporations getting legal rights with certain natural bodies in other countries, rivers, lakes, mountains, getting certain types of rights and protections as as legal persons. That's admittedly, you know, a much narrower definition than what we think about colloquially as what makes a person a person and certainly in terms of sentience. But I think when it comes to AI, we definitely do have to start thinking about some of these questions because hyperintelligence software at some point is going to become sufficiently complex and obscure in its inner workings that we're gonna have a hard time arguing that it's not sentient, right? So again, without good scientific definitions of consciousness and sentience, how do we even know that we have invented it? And will we admit it when we do invent it? And can we afford to wait until we're sure in order to give these protections to these machines, but also to ourselves? if a robot of the future commits a crime, who is responsible, right? We're already asking these questions about self-driving cars, right? If the car hits a person or gets in an accident with another vehicle, who has to take the blame? Is it, you know, the car manufacturer? Is it the person who built the software? Is it the person who trained the car to drive? Is it the government for allowing this to happen in the first place? Is it the owner of the car? Is it the passenger of the car? So we're already getting into tricky waters that I think are going to become increasingly complicated. And so defining some sort of legal personification when it comes to complex artificial intelligences or complex robots, I think is good for everyone's protection.
1: It reminds me when you speak of the automated self-driving cars, the Boeing... Was it the 737 MAX, uh, which had some new software in it that was supposed to make it easier and self-guided? And in fact, it turns out that that's what was responsible for those two very tragic crashes. I don't think anyone questioned that Boeing was responsible on some level, I think, although I shouldn't say, I suppose, that's being litigated in the courts. But I could see how in many settings that is an issue that's going to come up more and more.
0: Right. I can give you a, an even simpler one. If you use Google for your reminders, I mean, this is not the sort of thing you'd probably litigate. But once you become reliant on that, if the software fails to remind you of an important meeting, then you miss that meeting and you're going to get annoyed at Google um, or Siri or, you know, whatever AI you're using today. And then it becomes. Again, who's responsible? Shouldn't you be in charge of your own life? Can you really blame the device and the software and its manufacturer? Did you fail to put enough safeguards in place or did they?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, back to (laughs) handwritten notes and stickies for our important dates or just a string on the finger.
0: Maybe, but let me give you a counterpoint. What if your spouse promised to remind you and they forget it's very easy to blame them at that point, right? You're just kind of like, oh, well, you said you were going to do this. You promised and you didn't. And so so at that point, you don't blame yourself. You tend to blame them. And that's where I think this idea of giving the machines personhood can actually, in a lot of ways, end up protecting people. Because we start drawing those legal definitions and those lines of liability and then You know, we have to go further and decide what are the consequences to the machine, to its proprietors or designers when it is found guilty of something. But I think it's a two way street. You know, I think a lot of people think about it as absolving the machine of guilt. But I kind of like to turn that on its head and say, what can we do to protect us as much as we protect them?
1: Almost as much of the action in the book takes place in India as it does in the United States. And you were born in India and you came to the United States as a child. And I wondered if drawing on both settings for the story is just something you do naturally because you know both places well and you know them firsthand. Or do you also see it connected to the plot as... The duality we spoke of before, there are people with dual identities, there's the dual identity of human and bot in Welga, and there's the machinehood's vision of a more integrated future. Just wondering how places play a role in your mind in the story.
0: It was very much an echo of my own internal split, culturally, I came here when I was five, but I have a fairly large family and they were all still back in India. And so we went back and forth to visit quite a bit. And I'm definitely familiar with the environment there, with some of the language and cultural touchstones. And so I did want to give machinehood a sense of global perspective and, again, bring in a non-Western point of view. So the chapters, a lot of the chapters that take place in Chennai are from the point of view of a woman who's born and raised in India and who lives there at at the time of machinehood. And that allowed me to kind of explore, I guess, the, the two aspects of myself culturally, which is, you know, American from the U.S. side and Indian from the South Indian side. And to look at where those two things can intersect especially when it comes to science and technology but also when it comes to cultural values and how those play into that science and technology
1: There are issues that require reconciliation between Nithya who is Welga's sister-in-law and Welga's brother to whom she's married so they they also have a conflict that is rooted in their different perspectives about life and different religions, too.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I find that a lot of science fiction, especially near-future science fiction, tends to ignore religion and religious perspectives. And while I myself am not terribly religious, I am surrounded by friends and family who are, and they are all... Of different religions. And I've known couples that have interfaith relationships and I've always found it really interesting how they choose to balance that, especially after having children. And so I brought that into this story in the relationship between Nithya and Luis and how they interact and how they try to balance, you know, American culture and Indian culture. I also had fun with 75 years in the future Uh, Louis moves from the U.S. and emigrates to India and settles in Chennai with Nithya because opportunities are just as good there, if not better, than in the America of the future, which I'm sure some people here are not going to love um, that particular view or vision of the next century. But I do think, you know, globalization is kind of trending that way where anybody can go anywhere And work and live and things will equalize as time goes on. But bringing it back to the religious question, yeah, I I wanted to make sure that I didn't ignore that particular aspect of culture, and you know, try to do my best to represent different points of view, both in terms of dogma and philosophy.
1: Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. The book is fascinating, and I have found the conversation fascinating.
0: Thank you for having me. This was great.
1: My guest today has been S.B. Divya, author of Machinehood, which came out at the beginning of March from Gallery Books. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit the show, which is part of the New Books Network. The editor of the network is Marshall Poe, and the co-editor is Leanne Wilson. Take care of yourself. Take care of your loved ones. Take care of your books. Until next time.